Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Liverpool Comedy Improvcast with me, Ian Luke-Jones. This is where we get to know the people who make up the LCI community and a place where we delve into all sorts of improv topics. And today's guest is the absolutely delightful Charlie Murgatroyd. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher and wherever else you get your podcasts. We're even available on Amazon Podcasts, which means that you can ask Alexa to play the show. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, then please leave us a five-star review and subscribe to the show to give us a boost and help get our name out there. Now it's time to go off script and find out Charlie's true story about making stuff up. And please welcome this week's guest. It's Charlie. Hi, how are you? Yes. I'm good. Thanks for joining me on the show. No worries. Uh, so uh, we're going to jump straight into things, as I often like to. And I just want to find out, how did you get involved with Liverpool Comedy Improv? Right. Well, <laughs> it was a very spontaneous decision, as with a lot of things that I do. Um, I really like reading like um, chick lit rom-com books. Uh, I was reading one, and the one of the protagonists was a guy who was on Saturday Night Live. Um, and so this woman got talking to him and like they started talking about improv and I was like, this sounds like a really cool way to live. People don't live like this. <laughs> so I had a Google <laughs> and came across LCI and then I signed up to go the next week. And when was this? Uh, this was October last year. So I'm a newbie. Wow. So you had no experience of improv whatsoever? Absolutely nothing. I had bad memories of drama in high school of like freaking out in front of a class full of people and forgetting lines. Um, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a whole new experience. So what was your thought process going into that first session? Um, I took Andre with me. I think people have met Andre. He seems to tag around to like um, the gigs and stuff with me. Um, and we went sort of not knowing what to expect really. Um, and yeah, it turned out well. I ended up back. <laughs> so, for those of you that that don't know you and don't know Andre, just explain who Andre is. Oh yeah, Andre is my boyfriend. So um, we've been together for about five years now. Yeah. So we moved to we moved to the world a couple of years together. Awesome. And does he do improv generally? Because I've seen him get involved in jams yeah. and things. Um. He would like to do more, but like with work, it's difficult. Okay. But he's always up for a game. <laughs> <laughs> so has he been to some of the LCI drop-ins and things? He's done a couple of them, yeah. Because, um, you know, I've seen him at some jams and he's he's very good. Yeah, he's a natural. He's just a generally funny person. <laughs> <laughs> um. So let's just get back to you going to LCI and just getting stuck in. Are there are there lots of things that you've learned since that first session, or were you naturally Ooh. just very adept at improv? So many things, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm learning a lot about myself through improv, really. Like, I mean, I'm I'm learning the improv skills as well. Obviously, um, I've done I've done a couple of courses now. I've done the um, like level one, level two, short form. Currently doing a long form course. So I'm learning all those things, but like I think the most most of the things that I've learned have been about me 
as a person and like what I find easy what I struggle with um yeah so it's been a real adventure so would you say that improv has impacted you to the point where things that you might have struggled with before you found improv you don't struggle with them quite so much um, in some ways, and then in some ways, I've identified things that I do struggle with. So I'm very, I'm currently in the process of getting an ADHD diagnosis. Okay. And some of the things that have come up with that have been through improv that I didn't really realise. So things like obviously you have to be able to listen really intently in a scene so that you can read your partner. And I've had a couple of notes where it's been like, it's like you're looking at someone but it's not going in. And I've realized that that in itself can be a sign of ADHD. And then also, Jen, if I, I've lost track of how often Jen says ground your energy. <laughs> <laughs> like I am constantly moving. Um, so things like that have been a real struggle because it doesn't come naturally to stay still when I'm not performing. Um, yeah. That's the thing. It's great in scenes if you're moving around. But if you're stood waiting to go on and all anyone can see is you just like shaking around, it's not so great. <laughs> I guess even more so with the long form stuff, you say you're moving into long form, there's a lot more sort of standing at the side waiting yeah. to come on in long form. Yeah, so it's just something, um, something that I'm working on, trying to work out which bits I can move without people noticing. <laughs> And what are your thoughts on long form compared to short form? Um, well, it's, su- it's super new. Um, I'm I'm interested to see how like my um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? How my focus goes with long form. Right. In short form, it's really easy to keep focus because like it's over so fast. Um, I don't know how I'm going to cope with like right. We've got this idea and we're running with it for a sustained period. But that's the challenge. <laughs> and this this diagnosis, yeah, of ADHD is it something? Is it something brand new to you to even think about, or was it something that you you thought about? Did you always think, oh, I think there's something there? Like, what sparked you to to go down that journey of getting it looked into? Uh, yeah, like um, it's always it's always been something there. I've I've had um, diagnoses of anxiety and depression for a very long time. But I've always been like, this doesn't quite make sense. Like, even when I'm stable, things are a bit difficult at times. Um, And then I got talking to a friend off Bumble, and she would say, we basically had all these same character traits. And she was like, yeah, no, these character traits, I was diagnosed with ADHD from these. And I was like, oh, actually, this makes sense. So I went to the doctors and... Yeah, he was like, I, I'm pretty, I, I agree with you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a long process, though. So can you talk us through the process a bit? Because I'm sure there are people yeah. that might be listening and think, oh, this explains me a bit. But some people don't know how to, to go about getting a diagnosis. Yeah, so the way that I went is I went to the doctors um, and I was like, I'm struggling with this, this and this from a lot of things that I've read. It, I think it could be ADHD. And then they give you a form um, and you have to sort of rate it between all the time or not at all. Questions like, um, 
how often do you start a task and then not finish it? Those sort of things. Right. Um, and yeah, if you get above a certain um, threshold, then they'll send you for a referral to uh, a psychologist. It fascinates me as a teacher because even in the time, so I've been in education, I think this is like the end of my 17th year in education, maybe. And in that time, a lot has changed with things like ADHD and, and various things on the autism spectrum. Whereas there used to be maybe two, three max children in, in a school that had a diagnosis. And as the years have gone on, it's just more and more common that you'll have several pupils, not just in a school, but in a classroom with various different um, diagnoses of of ADHD, various things of autism. And it it's something that really intrigues me in terms of society. Is it that is it that more people have these things or is it that they've always been there, but now, oh, these things are kind of more accepted in society. Now we understand them. So now we now more people can can be given the label, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's a, it's a case of like, oh, suddenly lots of people have it. I think it's a case of like with psychiatry and things, it's it's so new. Like if you think back to only like 50, 60 years ago, people were being um, put in um, asylums and things like that. You know, that's yeah. that's not long ago. So like we're, we're really in like the new stages of these diagnoses. Um, I think for, for me, um, I noticed a lot of it through the pandemic. I think the way that um, the way that we sort of interact with capitalism and the requirements that we have sort of bring out those struggles in people of like, right, you have to fit this routine and you have to fit in this box. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's that's something that I really realised through the pandemic. I think what you say there about just understanding it more as well, and the more time people have to study it, the better things get. Because from my point of view, when it comes to sort of medical science, I was born with a rare form of cataracts. And thanks to medical science, I can see. Like, I would have been blind fully by the age of 17 if it wasn't for, like, people studying it and putting all that time and energy into it. But the process that I went through to have those operations was really different to the process that my mum and my brother went through. Because not only was I born with this thing, it was super rare because my mum had a rare form of cataracts, my brother had a rare form of cataracts, and then I did. And they were all slightly different variants, but all uh, very serious. And the process that I went through was after each surgery, I basically just had to keep light off my eyes and chill for a couple of months. When my mum had the surgery, um, quite a few years before she had to like have this big sort of metal brace around her head for six months and it was like really wow. different and I was like wow in the grand scheme of things not that much time passed between her operation and my operation but medical science had progressed so much and even now if I was to go and sort of have my lenses done now so I've got false lenses stitched into my eyes if I was to have the operation now, there is an option to have not just 
synthetic lenses stitched into your eyes, but synthetic lenses that actually contract like real lenses. Wow, and that's I, incredible. Yeah, and it is. And again, that's not that long in the grand scheme of things since I had my second operation. I, I had my second operation just 10 years ago and already like so much has changed in in the eye world of, of doctoring. So yeah. I think ev- everything is just the more it gets researched, the more incredible things they come up with. Yeah, I think uh, one, one of the things that's new, well, I say new with ADHD is the diagnoses of women um it's sort of been assumed previously that women can't have adhd and it turns out that it's because it presents very differently i think for a lot of people they they think of adhd as uh like a classic little boy running around the classroom being completely difficult to control um and yeah with with women it shows up different so but it's it's i am by no means an expert like it's completely new to me um i find it i find it really fascinating how um how the experience of women and men is really different in in medicine and same for um race like you know it's um we've got years of medical journals that focus solely on like one type of person and then yeah so it's it's a it's a new world as it were (laughs) When I was doing my degree, my education degree, a few years back now, there was there was a time where we were studying sort of ADHD and, and the impact of it. And oh, there's this guy, I can't remember his name, Ken Robinson, Ken Robinson. And he did this whole thing about society and how the, the UK school model has been wrong for years and it, it's more like a production line than actually caring about the individual. But there was this whole section about ADHD in America and it, there'd been this massive study and it was really interesting that on the West coast of America, like the number of uh, sort of diagnosed children with ADHD was really low. And then the further East you went, it just got higher and higher and higher and higher. And it was sort of put down to on the west coast it's generally a slower pace of life people spend more time outside physically doing things interacting with each other and then the further east you've got and you're heading like to new york and all that kind of stuff everyone's busy and no one's got time to spend with their children and they're spending all their time on screens and just being left alone to their own devices and that was believed to be sort of the main reason why more children on the east coast of america were diagnosed with ADHD and not on the West Coast of America. And it was really interesting to me um, to think that, oh, is it something that can be, that can, like, can society, are you born with it or can society actually have that big an impact on bringing it out? Yeah, it's interesting because I think I, I moved from Leeds to the Wirral and I've noticed a massive impact on my mental health just from pace of life. Like, even though obviously LCI is in Liverpool city centre, like most of my time is spent in the suburbs. Yeah. And it feels so much more chill here than like when I was in city life and it was constantly like 24 seven, you're spending all your weekends out just because you can. And yeah, so it makes a big difference. Yeah, I think it takes a certain person to be happy to live in a city. Yeah. 
I feel like it's great when you're young and everything. And then like, as, as you get older and your priorities change, I think you're sort of drawn away from the city a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say that like when you, when you get into your thirties, you can't have a great life in the city. Like, of course you could, any, any age you can have a good life in the city. But I think like you say, it's a personality like, yeah. And there's a certain, I don't know. I don't know what it is to do with like children in a city. So when I deal with children where I live in a sleepy North Wales town, like it's often even even like the worst children that you deal with, that's like nothing to like a city teacher. Like that's yeah. like small, small fry. <laughs> yeah, I went to I went to an inner city school, and I can I can imagine like as a teacher there were some challenges. <laughs> Um, I just want to bring your attention to something, actually, uh, going back to the ADHD thing. Have you heard of Brain Fog Improv? No. So Brain Fog, I advise you to check it out. Um, someone I've interviewed on the show in the past, actually, is Jess Napthine Hodgkinson. She is one of the co-founders of Glossop Improv, but she also does uh, this thing called Brain Fog, uh, where basically it's called the Brain Fog Cafe. And every now and again, it's just people with the unseen, neurodiverse um various issues can just come together for a chat and they talk about the different uh, challenges that they they faced in improv sessions and give each other advice and support and it's a really cool thing that's that's awesome i just uh, god the improv community blows my mind like <laughs> everyone is so open minded and like accepting of just all these different people i think that's that's one of my favorite things i've found about improv just this whole community feel yeah, and I think the open-mindedness, you've hit the nail on the head there because, you know, in my um, uh, quotation marks here, in my sort of normal life away yeah. from improv when I'm in school and all that kind of thing, when I talk to, again, normal people in quotation marks, they don't get improv. I'll try and explain it to them sometimes. And sometimes people are interested and they say they might come to a show, but they they just don't get it. And... That is how they are, not just with improv, but with lots of other things. The the things that improvisers are generally very open-minded about, sort of the rest of society are very closed off to it. It's not part of their world. They don't really want to know about it. They might say that they're okay with things, but they're not okay with things necessarily and because it's not part of their normal little world. Yeah, because this is a scary world to come into, right? Oh, you've yeah. got to you've got to break so many societal norms like just to stand in front of like a group of people and just say whatever comes to your mind if you did that in a normal quotation mark situation say if you did that in the office the judgment you would get is so different yeah 100%. it's like it's like society sort of being unpacked in your little improv world it's like right okay we leave social norms at the door and let's just go with whatever comes out and I really like that yeah and what's cool as well is it's such a supportive environment and I think that's what that's what the rest of society is lacking it's lacking supporting each other it's it's always sort of stabbing each other in the back trying to get one over each other trying to be the best person in the office all that sort of thing whereas in improv it's 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 not about being the best alone is about being the best together yeah I think you get to know people super quick with improv because the first thing you have to do is trust them which is sort of backwards 
Like in, in in the normal world, you build up to trust. In like the improv world, immediately you have to trust that this person has your back. Yeah, and I guess the trust comes first, and the liking comes second. Whereas in sort of normal society, you grow to like someone first, and then think, "Oh, I can trust them." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like. <laughs> Uh, you you play with people it's like I've literally just met you and I'm just like trusting you with so much on stage like you're so vulnerable when you're in that room in front of people and yeah I think that that it tells you a lot about the person if you if they can do that I think yeah and have you found the more you're doing it and the more you're playing with particular people have you found you can sort of because you've got that trust and because you have gained an understanding of this person can you play around a bit more and sort of think oh I know that they're quite good with that so I'm going to give them that offer but it might be an offer that you wouldn't give to just anyone because you don't know if they'd cope with a particular accent or whatever but you think oh I know that person can cope so I'm going to enjoy sending them this yeah I think I think there are elements of that although I don't think it's always conscious you know I think that's um I think what I've one thing I have learned is that like with eye contact being such a thing, I can almost like um, read certain people's minds of what's coming next just by a look, which is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I don't think like eye contact doesn't make me particularly comfortable outside of improv, but in improv it's almost I don't know, I don't find it as difficult. I don't think anyone really enjoys eye contact outside of improv. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, I don't think a lot of people necessarily think of it actively. I I said this to my flatmate like uh, during the pandemic. I was like, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone, are you also thinking about how much you're like looking them in the eye and oh, is that too much? Oh, is that not enough? And she was like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I thought everyone did that. See, I do I do this thing with children, which I've been doing for years, which is I teach them to give and receive compliments and just be thankful mm. for it. Because I find I'm not the sort of person that just gives compliments all the time, but I will just be honest. So if, if I see someone in, in work, a colleague, and she's had her hair done, and I like it. I say, oh, I like your hair. Or she's wearing a nice dress. Oh, I like that dress. Looks good on you. I'll just I'll just be honest and I'll say, if I like something, I'll tell people that I like it because I think it's nice to hear. Um, but often, if you say to someone that you like something, oh, I really like that dress. Oh, this old thing. Oh, I just got this out of the cupboard. Even though it is a brand new dress because people aren't actually very good at taking compliments generally. So this is something I try and teach children and it's actually really difficult to get them to look someone in the eye find something they like about them tell them it and that person just say thank you very much staring them back it's not as easy as it sounds it sounds so simple but it's it's something that i actually have to teach children to actually give and receive compliments and feel good about it yeah it's a i don't know if it's a british thing you know like um i don't think i don't think we take compliments in the same way as like say uh an american person like i feel i feel like the confidence levels are different i think um if you say to an american person like oh i like this about you they'll be like yeah 
that's right I'm great at that (laughs) (laughs) if you say that to an English person they're like the first thing I don't know about you but my first instinct is to find something to compliment back um Uh, it can't just be a standalone thing enough for me I think just because I've spent so much time teaching it to children I I've just got quite good at saying thank you very much yeah it's it's something we should all learn I'd yeah. like to I'd like to be able to aim for that one day. <laughs> <laughs> now the the difference between like British and other people you touched on there. I remember the first time I went to America, I think it was 2010. I went to the West Coast with my brother. Uh we had like uh we did the triangle, the West Coast triangle. We had a Ford Mustang, drove around for a couple of weeks. It was awesome. And I thought that we're going to encounter lots of people that are overly friendly and really fake with it yeah because that's the the british cynic in me thinking people can't possibly (laughs) be genuinely happy and and care about you and you know what i took away from that trip was how nice they were like genuinely nice when they asked me how i was i genuinely believed that they cared how i was i genuinely believed that they wanted me to have a nice day and the the only people that really annoyed me on the whole trip was a British family at one of the places we were at and they were so rude. And I was like, oh, these are really not making the Brits look good. They were so rude and demanding. And and I was sort of ashamed to sort of look myself in with them as Brits. And then when yeah. I got home and I, I went to a restaurant, I think it was the service I got, I was like, oh, that was really bad service. But then I was like, actually, no, it was just normal British service. And it just didn't, <laughs> it just didn't live up to the great service I'd just been getting in America. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like everyone has to go to America to learn to break stereotypes. Like I went across the Deep South and I was expecting, like, I think you get a very specific stereotype of the Deep South of, like, everyone's going to be gun-toting and, like, <laughs> yeah, just... I, it was so different because, you know, by um, Southern hospitality is a different stereotype that they have within the U.S., we don't really talk about Southern hospitality in the UK in relation to the US. We talk about all the Bible Belt stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, like everyone in the Deep South was so friendly. Like I have to say, I I mean, I'm saying this as a white person, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, they were so like uh, in the Deep South, everyone's like, have a blessed day. And it's just so sweet. Like yeah. you don't get that from the UK. Like, just, yeah. And it's funny, I guess, when you break it down, because, you know, in improv, we really work hard to avoid stereotypes because, you know, we're not out there to offend. But in reality, stereotypes are born from comedy because it's comedians over the years that have focused on these things to make light of them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with stereotypes is like there's a whole bunch of people that aren't in that stereotype. Yeah. And you've got to sort of meet them to break those stereotypes, right? 100%. Uh, so, for example, if anyone says anything about, oh, a Welshman, there's a certain stereotype that, oh, hello, I'm from the valleys and I like sheep in it. Now, I'm a Welshman. I don't sound like that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm quite I'm quite partial to sheep. I, I, I like sheep. The sheep that live not very far from my house, they just roam, they just roam the roads and it's great. Um, but I would not say I am a stereotypical Welshman. Most people don't even know that I'm Welsh because I don't sound like I'm Welsh. And that alone tells me, oh, well, yeah, 
just because I am Welsh doesn't mean that I am all of those stereotypes that people think of. And that's got to be the same for pretty much everyone else. I feel you. As, as someone from Yorkshire, I've heard my fair share of flat caps and whippets. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do, I do though, very much fit the tight Yorkshire woman. <laughs> so you say you live on the Wirral now. What yeah. sort of, what led you to make that decision to move from Yorkshire where you'd, you'd grown up and lived and say, hey, I'm going to try something new, live on the Wirral? Yeah, so I went to uni in. 2018 um, and I moved to Hull actually first um, then Andre got a job over here and we spent a year sort of commuting on the M62 that was our little home <laughs> just like every so often we'd go from one end of the M62 to the other and see each other um, and as it happened like Hull Uni wasn't really working for me so I was like okay I'll have a look at what's available out there and I found Chester Uni um they did the exact course that I wanted to do which was politics and international relations um and yeah so I was like I actually moved to Chester before the world and our commute to see each other was much shorter awesome so you lived in Hull now yeah. that in itself comes with many stereotypes because people say <laughs> it that does People say that Hull is the most depressing place in the UK, but I've met people from Hull that are lovely and not depressing at all. Hull's a lovely place to live. The only problem I had with Hull was the fact that the shops closed earlier than what I'm used to. Ooh, tell me more. Well, just because I lived in like Leeds City Centre, I was used to, like, basically there's always a 24-hour supermarket or something around. And in Hull, everything sort of closed at, like, 5, 6 o'clock unless it was a bar. <laughs> so I was just a bit like, oh, I, 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 um, I worked at the arena in Hull. So a lot of my shifts would finish at like 10, 11 o'clock. Okay. And then there was no takeaways open, <laughs> which was like, oh, that's that's a really rubbish end to a shift. It, there's little things about about different towns around the UK that fascinate me. And one of them is sort of random traditions that still exist. So. I grew up in a place called Hollywell and I live not far from Hollywell now. Um, and when I was a child, I always remember that on a Wednesday, it was half day in the shops. The town shut down at, at lunchtime on a Wednesday. And to this day, that still happens. Like I'm not in Hollywell town very often, but I was there not that long ago on a Wednesday. And I was like, oh, wow, the shop's still shut on an afternoon on a Wednesday isn't that weird that's so that's so bizarre why Wednesday <laughs> it's like a midweek <laughs> treat a little break I don't know I, I mean I'm here for it I wish <laughs> everything just was like okay it's Wednesday afternoon enjoy yourself <laughs> but I just think in a world where everything else is just like on demand all the time everyone wants everything and they want it all now I think how how cool that yeah we're just going to close down on a Wednesday afternoon and chill yeah so well, it's like it's like France. Like we went to we went to France a couple of months back, and there's, the pace of life is so different. I I just I love seeing how different places do their day to day lives. Yeah, I think when I was in France, one of the times I was in France, we sort of made this big schedule. We're going to go here. We're going to do that, and then we discovered that museums 
and various other things don't actually open on a Monday and a Tuesday in France. And we were like, oh, well, that's kind of scuppered our whole plans. Now we're here and there's nothing to do. Uh, but it was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's just close those things on a Monday and a Tuesday. Yeah, it was weird because we we were there while it was a bank holiday. And in, in the UK, obviously, your shop's closed because it's bank holiday. But museums and things don't necessarily close. And like in France, it was just like, right, everything's closed because it's bank holiday. Like including including your supermarkets, which yeah, that that blew my mind. Like we have Sunday hours, but we don't sure. Yeah, it's crazy. And like when I was a child and it was a bank holiday, like it was it was truly a thing. Yeah, everything was shut. And obviously the bank was shut. You couldn't go and do money things. But now because everything's online, it's never really shut. And most places don't even have banks in them anymore anyway. Yeah. And you can you can still go to the pub with your mates. <laughs> yeah. And shops, opening hours are getting longer, I've noticed, on Bank Holiday. The shops that traditionally would have shut completely, some of them are open now. And supermarkets that used to open for a very specific time, their opening times on Bank Holiday is getting wider. And I'm, I just feel like we're going to reach a point in society where nothing ever closes. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary world because I don't think like it's talked about enough. Like the uh, the impact that that has on everyone mentally, constantly having to because it's not just your supermarkets that are open. Like everyone's open for business twenty four hours a day because you can be like working from home. When do you get that time to just be yourself? Yeah, and there's lots of things. So again, going back to me being a teacher. I know there's lots of things in place in offices around parts of the world now where they're trialing a four day week. And I think, oh, how would that work for school? And what I think, see, I think school should be four days for the children, five days for the teachers, but they mm-hmm. get a full day of just being in there without the children to fully get all of the admin stuff and the, the prep done and all that kind of stuff. And that the children, because then people will say, well, what about the children? Someone needs to look after the children. Um, because ultimately most people just think school is just childcare, free childcare. Um, I think, well, that's when all the office workers should get their day off and it should be a day for families or for friends. If you don't have families, you know, just a proper day. Yes. Teachers can go to school and, and enjoy that. And everyone else gets a day to just relax. And then we get our normal weekend because the weekend for most people these days isn't relaxing. It's full of activity. <laughs> So if people yeah. just had that one day a week to properly just chill, enjoy some family time or go to school and get all the admin stuff done, um, I think that would be a better society to live in. I think so too. I think there's so much uh, pressure to be productive now. But even when you're having, like you say, your weekend's off, you have to be productive because like, just sitting and doing nothing isn't enough. <laughs> um, it's it's strange. Like uh, I think we all have to do a lot of work to undo that in ourselves because I don't think it's good for your, your mind to be constantly switched on like that. Yeah. And yeah, there is a stigma to it. Or like, why should we feel bad for sitting in our house and being and well and lazy? It's not really lazy. It's just enjoying time. I, a lot of us put a lot of effort into making our house a nice place to be. So why shouldn't we get the time to enjoy it? Yeah. I think there is this, uh... There's this idea that being still is being lazy, and I don't think that's the case. Like, you can be still and still be using your brain, or you can be still and just enjoying yourself, you know? Like, I don't think there's... I, I'm, 
I mean, I'm one to talk. Like I, I don't. I find it really hard to just enjoy being still because I'm I'm constantly thinking I should be doing this instead. So, yeah. see, I love to read, but sometimes when I'm reading, I feel like my brain starts saying, "What are you doing? Just sitting here reading a book? Why aren't you up? Why aren't you doing something?" Yeah, and that, that like um. I was really lucky. I had a really supportive lecturer through the pandemic because I was I was in my final year through the pandemic, which Ooh. is I don't recommend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she she was saying she was like, um, I, I came from working like a full time job uh, and constantly like if I'm not doing something, I'm not being productive. And she she was like, look, you can be productive and be just thinking. Like just sitting still and thinking is still being productive. And that was that was really hard to accept because I think it's really easy to start overworking yourself. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it just takes someone to be like, yeah, okay, just take a step back and realize that you're still working even if you're still sometimes, especially with work from home. I think I've said this on the podcast before, I'm not sure, but... I believe I do my best thinking when in the bath or the shower, because when you're in the bath or the shower, you know that that is, that is your task to sit in the bath and in, in enjoy the relaxing time and get clean or in the shower just to wash yourself. And so you are physically, you know, you're not wasting that time because you're, you're doing the, the thing that you need to do, but your mind or certainly my mind in, in those moments, it's the freest it can be. I've written, so many songs based on the ideas I've had in the bath or the shower. I've written scripts or, or, or things for school just based on the ideas that I get when my mind is free because I'm, I'm still, but my body knows it's doing something useful, but my mind is free. Yeah. Unfortunately, my mind does that at bedtime at like two uh-huh. in the morning. <laughs> all my best ideas come to me at two and three in the morning sadly <laughs> <laughs> and do you do anything to jot down those ideas um yeah like my iphone notes is full mm. so yeah at the minute um a minute of uh a lot of my ideas at two and three in the morning are about um a sketch show that i've just decided to start writing Ooh. so that's my yeah that's my thing at the minute. I'll just be laid there in bed and it'll be like, just as I'm, just as my head touches a pillow, it's like, yeah, but what if this happened? You should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned right at the start of this, you were reading a book and it spoke about improv and it spoke about yeah. sort of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. What's your impression of Saturday Night Live and that style of improv compared to the style that we do here in the UK? Well, it's a good question because I don't watch it. <laughs> Oh, you've never seen it? <laughs> no, no. It's just uh, I've I've seen like the odd sketch that people have like shared online. Uh, American comedy isn't really my forte, which I think is really interesting in improv because everyone's uh, influences seem to be American. Um, all my all my comedy influences are British people, like um, like Steve Coogan and Mitchell and Webb and Rick Gervais and all those sort of people. Yeah, there is uh, something I was speaking about just this morning with an improviser friend of mine, and it's the fact that lots of there's lots of Americans 
and the American style of improv is quite a, it's quite their own thing. And there's even within America, there's different different levels to it, different places do it in a slightly different way. Um, and there is this sort of sense of where some people are like, well, why are you forcing that on us here? We we've actually got our own way of doing things. We we don't have to have that forced upon us. So some people are very much of that line of thinking. And there's lots of great improvisers that have gone on uh, from SNL to do loads of, of things. Uh, but I personally, like, I don't enjoy sitting watching SNL because I find it very hit and miss. Yeah, there's the occasional funny sketch, but then a lot of it, like you say, American comedy, it's its, it's, its own thing. And it's I often tend to prefer like the British comedians myself. Yeah, same with like stand up. Like all all the stand ups that I like, with um, a couple of exceptions. Um, most of them are British people, like Stuart Lee, Ross Noble, those sort of people. Yeah. Um, don't know that they've necessarily got a British sense of humour. Um, don't know. It's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to pin down what is a British sense of humour or what is an American sense of humour because it's so broad now. Yeah. Now I went through a stage when I used to live with my brother for quite a long time and I went through a stage of really getting into the Disney channel and watching programs that were effectively made for children. But there was something about them that I really took to. And when I broke it all down, I was like, Oh, what it is is in America, they don't have pantomimes, but the humor that you get in their children's TV shows is very much pantomime humor. And I love pantomime humor. I love British pantomimes and things. Uh, and that was the connection that I made. Oh, yeah, the, the things that make me laugh in those shows that are aimed at children, they're not just aimed at children, because if you look, there's jokes in there for adults too, just like in pantomimes. Yeah, that's a, it's kind of like um, like horrible histories. If you watch that as an adult, there's a lot yeah. of jokes for adults that are like sort of go, horrible histories is a brilliant example of British comedy, actually. Like everyone that I love has been in horrible histories at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible histories uh, for me as a teacher is a lifesaver because if there's ever like a spare 20 minutes and you want it to be a useful time, oh, let's watch Horrible Histories. My, the most impressive thing Horrible Histories have ever done is they did a whole sketch on Caligula and it was like, I was like, how have you done that for kids? <laughs> That's incredible to me. Yeah, I think they're, they're so talented. Yeah. Yeah, and those guys have all gone on to do... Uh, like some really impressive stuff as well oh yeah like um uh, like ghosts i'm obsessed with ghosts and <laughs> also uh the wrong mans which um matthew bainton did with uh james corden james corden yeah that was yeah. really good yeah i know it's not cool to like james corden <laughs> <laughs> yeah why is that because everyone loved james know. corden everyone loved him and then all of a sudden oh he's successful in america now oh let's hate james corden yeah and i think I think he's got a very American attitude towards like his career. Like he'll he'll give he'll give everything a go and he'll give everything a hundred percent. And I think in Britain people have still have that idea of like selling out, you know. Yeah. Whereas like in America, it's almost encouraged to be like, right, okay, get your face out there, be recognised. Like that's how you do Hollywood, you know. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I remember I, I used to have this friend sort of in my teenage years and she was really into supporting new bands. And then I'd often get on board with these bands because she was 
playing them all the time. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, they're cool. Let's go see them. That's great. And then, like, that by the time their second album would come around, I'd be like, oh, they've got a new album coming out, and she'd be like, oh, I'm over them. Oh, they're all sellouts now. I'm like. <laughs> It's not really selling out. It's just being successful. Look, they got where they are because you supported them. Why won't Why won't you continue your support? Yeah, it's very strange. Like, um, you know, we're constantly encouraged to be successful, but not too successful because that's a problem. Yeah, it's like Lewis Hamilton in the F one. He's like the most successful driver of all time now, but people are bored of that. No, no, no. yeah. Let, let's get him off. Let's get other people winning races because it's boring. They say, oh, he's winning all the time. Instead of just saying, well, let's just celebrate the fact that he's really good at what he does. Nah, we, we need him to crash. We need him out. Yeah, I think um, and I think in that situation, like you've just got to go with what's, what's right for you because you're never going to please everyone, you know? Yeah, that's, I think that's a very I good... think that's what James Corden's very good at. I think he just does what he wants to do. Because, I mean, if God, he must have seen the internet and been like, oh, everyone just, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's talking about how rubbish I am and how they're sick of seeing me. Yeah, it must be a weird thing to sort of be a celebrity. Whether you're an A-lister or a Z-lister, if your name is out there to a point where people will take the time to like slag you off online, it must be very hard to just be okay with that, I guess. Yeah, I think... Um... The the mental um what's what's the word for that? The the mental resilience that it would take to be in that situation. I don't think people give them enough credit for that because it must be difficult to constantly be criticized. That's everyone's biggest fear, right? Yeah. Just especially like if you if you're on stage in improv, like I think everyone goes home and has that moment where they're like, Oh my god, I said that and that's that was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that that way. So to then go home and have that like broadcasted everywhere, <laughs> it's like my worst nightmare. And I think there's a thing with fame that people just automatically assume they have to have an opinion. So let's say you're famous because you're an actor or you're a singer. Everyone feels they have to have an opinion about whether that person is attractive or not. Whereas in normal life, you don't just go around sort of analyzing, oh, that person's attractive, that person isn't attractive. You just kind of don't really think about it. Well, at least I don't think about it. But yeah. when someone is famous, all of a sudden, it's like you have to have an opinion. And some people, often they'll say, oh, yeah, they're, they're great. And they say all the things they love about them. But if they just walk past them in the street, they wouldn't think any of those things about them because... There's a level, there's fame adds something to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's that pedestal that we put them on, you know, and that's, that's how it's hard to live up to, you know. I think that's why people like, you know, uh, like Adele and Rebel Wilson, where it's been like all about, like, oh, look, this massive weight loss. And it's like, but yeah, but like six months ago, you were slagging her off for being too fat or whatever. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, she's lost weight and it's like, oh, incredible. Um, and you know, I can see how like women end up having to feel like they need to change. Yeah, and I think when it comes to if you are famous and you go through a massive transformation, like weight loss or whatever, most of the time that's because that's what they they wanted. Like if they wanted to lose some weight, then they could lose some weight. They haven't done it 
for the they've done it to seek approval of people they've just done it because that's what they felt they wanted yeah and I think that's uh people's perceptions tend to be that oh they've changed because that's what society told them to do they sort of forget that they're autonomous beings (laughs) (laughs) because of the way that they're like represented in the media as they live for us rather than for themselves so yeah very strange not for me (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've just seen the time, so I'm going to start bringing this. Oh, to yeah. Sorry, I'm a right chatterbox. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this chat uh, because, you know, I never know where these chats are going to go. And I, I think what we've touched on today is really interesting. We've Well, we've done what my brain does best and just gone around the houses and done everything. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't stay in one place for long. Um, so if people want to find you or see you improvising or come and improvise with you or just connect with you in any way, have you got anything you want to advertise in terms of social media? No, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. You can pop about on there and yeah, <laughs> like slide in my DMs. <laughs> <laughs> and if people come along to LCI, they'll probably bump into you, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm around a lot. I do tend to just show up. <laughs> Well, there we go. Well, thank you very much, Charlie. That was a really great chat. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much to Charlie. That was a really great chat. And again, uh, one of the things I love about this show is the opportunity for me to get to know people whom I don't really know very well. And we spoke after the interview and we spoke about the fact that we just had a great conversation, like, like we're all friends catching up. And in reality, we barely know each other. Like Charlie and I, we've encountered each other like two, three times, I think maybe, uh, sort of in the improv world. Um, we're aware of each other uh, because we've got mutual connections and things. But I feel like when I was chatting with Charlie there, like genuinely, like I was just having a chat with an old friend. So that's what's so cool about improv and the improv community. And uh, it just brings like-minded people together and you instantly just have a connection with people because you're like-minded and it's crazy because you just don't encounter that in sort of the real world out there and I'm saying that with quotation marks because I love my quotation marks because they clearly work very well in an audio format Um, but yeah a a really great chat I, I had no idea going into that all of the fantastic avenues that we were going to go down and talk about and I love when we can sort of come away from improv a little bit and talk about different things and then come back to it. So that was a really fascinating chat. And thanks so much to Charlie for that. Now, if you're interested in getting into improv or already involved in improv and want to try out a different improv scene, then all the information you need can be found at www.liverpoolcomedyimprov.co.uk. You can also check us out on Facebook by searching for Liverpool Comedy Improv and on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Live Comedy Improv. Don't forget we do have a Facebook page as well. Just search for the Liverpool Comedy Improv cast and you'll find everything you need to know about the show there, including every Thursday... Uh, before a new episode we drop a trailer and then every monday you'll get the link to the show every monday that we release obviously we're on a two uh, every other week schedule right now Uh, so yeah every time there's a new episode everything you need will be there 
on the Facebook page. And if you are a member of the LCI community and you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please get in touch with me or with Emma and we'll make the arrangements as soon as possible. And I genuinely mean it. Like, There's new people coming along all the time and, and hopefully you're listening to this and getting to know the people that you're improvising with a little bit. And I would like to get to know you. I would like to chat with you, find out your journey, your improv story. So yeah, even if you've never interacted with me in any way, shape or form, send me a message on Facebook. I'm very easy to find. Just search for Ian Luke Jones. You'll find me, uh, in fact, all over social media, uh, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or TikTok. Just search for Ian Luke Jones or at Ian Luke Jones and you'll find everything you need. And it's Ian with two eyes. And I don't mean the eyes in my head. I mean two eyes in my name. That's I-A-I-N. And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, then as always, please um, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show. And that really does boost us. And it gets our name out there. It's little things like that that go a long way. If your friends listen to the show because you're on it, then tell them to do the same. I really appreciate anything like that that you can do for us. Now, I'm never really sure who listens to this part of the show. I don't know whether people just listen to the interview part and then switch off, or do people actually listen to this last little bit? And sometimes it can be hard recording these last little bits because I record these interviews sometimes in advance and I'm not 100% sure what is going to go on in the improv world so it's hard to advertise things sometimes sometimes improvisers will say something and i'll be like oh yeah when this goes out that will have actually already happened and in the last interview with michael that pretty much happened i think i think we referenced something that was going to have happened or will be happening the very week of that chat or something um so just it's important to just keep on top of things if you want to know what's going on in the improv community follow the things that you love follow Liverpool Comedy Improv sign up for their regular emails or if there's a particular troop if you love Boss Birds follow the Boss Birds social media pages if you love Broken Chair do the same if you love the Oikers my troop the Oikers follow us we, we have a page and all the information's out there because there's lots of opportunities coming up where all of these fantastic troops will get to perform sometimes they might be performing together like i know as i'm recording this there's a great night coming up at the end of july where boss birds broken chair oikers moses and bird uh, a sketch comedy show that's all happening at the end of july but i know that that's in the past for you because if you're listening to this this is coming out after that show so it's, it's hard to advertise things i know that uh, other things i'm involved in flinch a funny bone got some great things coming up so do check it out uh, because there's going to be great opportunities for you to see the people that you love the troops that you love doing what they do best and that pretty much brings us to the end i want to say a massive thanks to charlie again that was a really fun chat i loved the different tangents we went off on and I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed actually having the conversation. So that is the end of this week's episode. But before I go, here are some words that are wise, wise, wise. Always remember, whatever the situation, to treat life like improv. And yes, and...